know who has access to what? This is the Identity at the Center podcast. If you're looking for identity and access management talk, you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Here I am. Here you are. That's where you are. You're there. <laughs> uh, today was day one of the Kupinger Cole Consumer Identity World Conference. Again, that's a mouthful. Yeah, good job pronouncing it. Yeah. Kupinger, 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 not Kupinger. Which I've said before, Kupinger. So, okay. but yeah, it's Kupinger, as I learned today. So already a successful conference. Yes. <laughs> right. Learned something. We can we can now correctly say the sponsor's name. My attitude is generally. I want to learn something new every day. Once I do, I shut down. <laughs> so we learned that pretty early. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, today was a day of workshops, and uh, there was a few different things that were talked about. There was a presentation by ID Pro around identity access management, really kind of like an intro to IM, but they had some other good topics in there. Yeah, you know, when I saw the topic on the agenda, I thought, okay, I've been in the industry for 15 years. I'll probably skip this one. Um, but it was a single track day, so mm-hmm. I sat in the session. It was um, Sarah and Ian, and they're both really brilliant people. And I got a lot out of it. You know, I think one of the things, sometimes when you're so close to something, um, is you don't see, let's say, you don't see the forest or the trees, or basically, mm-hmm. I think that's the right analogy. That, yeah. But basically what I mean by that is, you. You know, they they had a slide, for example, on IDP discovery or on discovery. So it was, you know, if somebody is doing a federated login, how do you know what IDP to send them to? And they gave a good framework of, you know, here are the three methods. And I think that is really interesting. So I, I actually think what I'd like to do is get their slide deck and maybe even have one of them come on the show sometime and really just go through what ID Pro is all about, maybe pick some of those topics and, and kind of dive into them. Yeah, could be Sarah, could be Ian, might be uh, Debbie Mack from uh, the organization. So yeah. that's something we've talked about in the past. I think as we've kind of grown into this podcast, right, and uh, kind of learned how it how it works, that we can, um, you know, start to figure out how to, how to get some some better guests and different guests from around I don't think you can get place. better guests than the ones. Yeah, better was wrong the word, is the wrong word, but just, you know, more guests, different guests from different areas and, and right. kind of talk about the But ID Pro is a great org. It's only been around for, I want to say this is the third year. It started at the Ping Identity Conference, which became Identiverse um, several years. I think it was 2016. It was in Chicago. And so I'm a founding member of the organization, just like you know a bunch of other people. Um, and I also served uh, last year, or this year, I should say, on the board nomination committee. So I do have some relationships there that maybe you know might be helpful to kind of bring on to the show right. and kind of talk through it. But yeah, I think that would be it is a good a good well run, well managed, and kind of well executed organization. It feels like they're trying to make significant um, change for the good in the industry. Yeah. So one of the things they were talking about is how to help people get up to speed quicker. And I think the way that it was put was it takes people between five and 10 years 
to really know the industry. And that was based on survey responses. In other words, people self-grading. So, you know, I think you could look at it and say, oh, you know, people, if you've been in the industry 15, 20 years, it's like, oh, you won't know it as much as I know for so long. But, you know, this is people grading themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think the thought pattern went, well, most of us who get into IAM start with a single product, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not really industry experts for, you know, during that period where we're only working with one product because we get very product focused on how that product solves a particular problem. Right. Yeah, I remember when that survey went out. <laughs> so it would definitely was a poll of ID Pro members and kind of get that sense of when to feel when do people feel proficient? And it was that five to ten year mark. But you know, even people who have been in the space for fifteen plus years, like you and I, I still feel like there's always something new to learn. Right? Technology is always changing. I think there's core concepts, right, that maybe now we take for granted, right. but there are people who don't have that experience, right? We had Morgan on a few weeks ago. Um, you know, she's relatively new to the IAM space, you know, and it's people like that, that how do we groom that next generation? I know that was a topic that actually, um, you know, someone wrote in looking for uh, us to talk about. And I think at some point in the future, once we get through this little travel stint we're on, right. um, it would be a good idea to kind of get those folks back into a room and really kind of talk about how do we get, how do we get the, you know, folks who don't have as much experience with IAM, snag them in college and, you know, other areas, you know, younger folks or people who are just looking to make a change and try to, you know, help them along the path. Yeah, totally. ID Pro has this project they're working on called the Body of Knowledge, which is essentially the intent is to be kind of a, you know, a training manual <laughs> for right. IAM. Yeah, you know, what was interesting was it was meant to be kind of, I think the way Sarah was putting it was, it's like, so first off, I'm a PMP, so mm -hmm. that's project management professional, that's mm -hmm. the group that PMI that built the PMBOK, yep. project management body of knowledge. So I actually had to know it like down to the jot and tittle at one point. Um, and what she was saying was that they want to create a body of knowledge, but they don't want it to dictate best practices. Mm -hmm. And my thought was, well, the PMBOK definitely, so this is the best practice, right? It's not a agnostic from that sense. But I do think that in IAM, it's a little dangerous to, you know, try to say this is the best practice. I think yeah. you know, so many different people have different perspectives on what the best practice is. Well, they change so, I mean, they can change relatively quickly. Right. If you think about it, like, what was it, like two years ago, uh, SMS is fine. Or maybe it's three years ago, but right. SMS is fine for a one-time password. Now it's not even recommended by NIST standards. And right. I don't think historically NIST has moved as quickly maybe as, you know, the industry, right. but even NIST, uh, you know, is saying, yeah, we're deprecating that and it's no longer considered um, a secure form for authentication. Right. That being said, if you're only using an ID and a password, and the only option you have available is to use some sort of SMS, you know, OTP, yep. then it's probably better than it's nothing really at all. It's better than nothing, right? But yeah, things move so quickly that I don't know if you want to set a, a best practice today right. without having to have several pages of this is a point in time. <laughs> you know, right, exactly. You're going to have to just, I mean, no matter what you do, you're going to have to update it. That's the one thing about identity management that's been cool since. I first got into industry. The first conference I went to was called Digital ID World. And it was like, 
I think he was there. <laughs> I mean, he gets he's, around. he's been around for a long time. Um, but the, you know, it was like, they talked about, I am from the standpoint of like, what is the philosophy? What is an identity? <laughs> <laughs> and it was really cool. I loved that about it. I was like, you know, I never really thought about like, what does an identity mean to a me? Philosophical discussion. A philosophical discussion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there are so many different um, industries where they've kind of disappeared as an industry and they've just become, like, could you imagine a CRM or an ERP um, industry event? I don't think those exist. I think they're all focused on... Their one product, yeah. They're all product focused yeah. now. So it's either like, you know, Salesforce or SAP or, you know one of those guys, or maybe it's like Microsoft or something, mm-hmm. but you know, identity management still has vendor agnostic conferences. Yeah. Which is, I guess, I think it's great. I mean, there's so many, so many products out there, you know, sometimes I fundamentally, I, I feel like fundamentally they do pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. They help me understand who has access to what, and if that is appropriate, that it's, basic level that's pretty much all am is right mm-hmm. now there's different things right that could be you know around the authentication side authorization side you know wherever it may be but there's so many still good conferences like you said that you can see the you know and compare and contrast to different solutions because each one has an area i think that they're really good at yeah. where others specialize maybe in you know another area of iam right. or even just down to you know, I'll call it like simple things like IGA, Identity Governance Administration, um, doing just the basics of plumbing of provisioning accounts, deprovisioning accounts. Yeah. You know, certifications. SailPoint does it this way. Sabian does it this way. Oracle does it another way. They all have different, you know, strengths that they play to. Yeah. I asked the question, and it wasn't like in order to stump these guys, because I'm really interested to see if they, had an answer but you know it's like we talk about saml2 and we talk about oauth2 and openid connect and i asked the question what what's What's next and uma was mentioned that's definitely one that it has people's interests and then there are a few proprietary things but it's a little bit hard i think a hard question to answer because i don't think there's anything emergent that's like blockchain the next you see Here's the thing. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you that 10, 15 years down the road, it's going to be something else. Right. Well, that's kind of feel like about Active Directory, right? Somewhere, someone has already replaced Active Directory. Right. We just don't know it yet. That's right. <laughs> it's kind of the same way that, what, Novell, you know, all of a sudden was gone and he replaced Novell, essentially, right? Yeah. So something's out there and it'll replace it. I'm, I'm curious to see how the blockchain plays into this. Yeah, I think there's some sessions in the next couple of days yeah. around that decentralized identity. Um, Sarah did have, you know, interesting use case around um, UMA, UMA, yeah. where it was kind of like a point to point authentication, which I think is interesting because in the age of privacy, you don't necessarily need to know someone's birth date, right? You just need to know, you know, are they old enough to do what they're trying to do? Is it by a beer, you know, by whatever, where they need yeah. to be 21 or maybe to vote, right? You don't right. need all that information, just yes or no. Basically, it's a binary. So thing. then you start having the idea of like an identity provider being a government agency and things like that, which, 
you know, that idea has been getting thrown around since this digital ID National world. National ID. <laughs> yeah. yeah, National ID. And, you know, I, I don't know. It's like, as much as it seems to make sense, it never really actually seems to ever happen. And I think part of it is, you know, I'm not an anti-government person, but, you know, I think the government moves too slow to keep up with the pace of technology for consumers. Yeah. Well, isn't it, I think it's Estonia. They've gone to an all digital identification. Um, I, I, I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently, so I'm going to stop right there. All right. But I'm pretty sure it's Estonia. <laughs> right. I should, probably should have researched that a little bit more, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Estonia that has gone to like an all digital identity. They do all their voting online. Right. I'm not sure how secure it is, but you know, that could be something that becomes a case study of here's what works and here's what doesn't work because like anything else, technology, people, processes, et cetera, will all continue to evolve, mature, et cetera, based on, you know, the needs of humans. <laughs> yeah. Until the robots take over. So one last thing I want to do is um, mention, I was talking about that discovery. I went back and looked at the slide because I took a picture of it. So the three forms were, the first one they called NASCAR, which I thought was a really cool name. So NASCAR <laughs> was the login screen with all the little, widgets or icons just yeah, like sponsored by yeah sponsored by <laughs> so you have like the google or uh, yahoo linkedin um, Apple, facebook linkedin no, right. yeah um so i thought that was pretty cool that was method number one so this is idp discovery mm -hmm. method one was nascar method two was um what they call idp discovery which was you just put in your domain or you hit a drop down to select your domain and then the third was user base, which is where I'd say this is probably the most common. You type in an email address, type style username, and it truncates off, you know, at yeah, whatever, finds the email whatever domain, domain yeah. and then it'll send you back to the right one. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, more to come on that probably. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of the, the afternoon was focused on a workshop around how to manage through a data breach. And this was truly a workshop. So when yeah. I saw it on the agenda, I didn't really distinguish, okay, workshop means there's going to be a lot of participation by folks in the, in the audience. So it wasn't just watching a bunch of presentations. And actually I thought that was good. It kept it from being too boring, mm -hmm. at least for me. Um, but the, the KC guys were, Richard Hill and John Tolbert. I thought it was a really good session. Um, the, I think the the big message was what was the session? So what, what was, was it called? It was handling a, an identity breach or something. Right, like identity customer identity customer breach. Identity breach yeah. um, and the so the way they they went through the workshop was they went over kind of a lot of you know here here's kind of the problem. One of the problems is you know, if you look at handling a breach, there's how you can prevent it, how you can detect it, and how you can respond. Mm -hmm. um, most of the investment that, at least, so they did a survey of uh, companies in the UK, and like 90% of those companies had invested in prevention, 55% uh, had done some level of investment in detection, mm -hmm. and only 13% invested in response. Yeah. So in other words, <laughs> planning for the response. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is like, 
the data breaches I think occurred are occurring to like 50% of companies or something like that. I mean, yeah. it's a really high percentage. I don't know who said it, but there's the, the old adage of either you've been, either you've been hacked or you don't know it yet. Right, exactly. And, and then <laughs> what they were also saying was like, you know, common, there's common patterns that they're, that they found in their survey. There's a survey by the Panaman Institute. There's one by IBM. And a lot of the numbers are the same. And one of the, the shocking statistics is it takes about a half a year yeah. on average to even detect that you've been hacked. This is why I'm such a big fan of things like machine learning and AI. Yeah. Because how are you going to catch that stuff? There's no way you, you know, that it makes sense to staff dozens, hundreds of analysts yeah. just to try and pour over logs and, you know, whatever it may be. So I think that's, I think that's what you're seeing now is the kind of a, the, the leading edge of IAM is a lot of this focus on machine learning, AI, so you have products like Exabeam, for example, right? Where they're yeah. doing that kind of work. Splunk, I know, is getting into it. Well, especially when a lot of these um, data breaches start with a phishing attack. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're getting somebody's credentials one way or the other. And then you start access, if you're a hacker, you start accessing the network in a way that would be normal. What would AI do in, a, in that case? Because you say, okay, well, you're accessing the network in a way that's normal, or you're accessing it from China, right? or you're accessing it from the VPN, and you're on the network at the same time, right. from two different devices, that doesn't make sense. Right, or you're you know, trying to access different things that you normally don't try to access. Right, right, and then, and exactly. So it starts kicking off a weird mm -hmm. pattern, and it requires somebody to go look into it further. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that was, that's the thing is that um, so many of these cases happen and then organizations don't have a plan to deal with the data breach and then one occurs and they're, they're trying to fight a, a battle without a plan, right? So things start moving very quickly on you. What I thought was interesting about that part where, you know, the vast majority of the spend was on prevention side and very minimal spend on response and i think you see that today in some of the responses that you see from the companies where frankly they're trash responses they're right. not good right they they just do a terrible job and every once in a while i'll see a company i'm, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head that i can think of where it's like okay they actually i think they did a good job yes they got hacked that's bad but at least their response is a little bit better and there was some interesting conversation in the room around why do we think the response spend is so small in comparison to, you know, prevention, detection, mitigation, those sorts of things. And I don't remember who said it in the room, but I was kind of thinking the same thing. It's if you're spending, and this is just a perception thing, right? If you're spending a lot of money on recovery or response, isn't that self-defeating? Because the whole point of you spending money on right. prevention and, you know, detection and all those sorts of things is that you don't get to the response. So what are you saying to your CEO and say, hey, I need, you know, a million dollars for, you know, prevention and detection and another million dollars for response? Or right. what do you mean? Why am I spending a million dollars on prevention if you're telling me that it's already going to fail? So I think it's an interesting a dynamic that, you know, CISOs and, and CIOs and other folks at the exec level have to balance that, you know, that, yes, we're going to do everything we can to stop the breach, but we know that inevitably something could happen and we need to be prepared for it as well. Yeah. The challenge I would have on that would be 
it should not cost you a million dollars. No, I was, response just, I was using easy numbers for my simple it brain. Should be, but uh, I'll grant you that in some companies, maybe it would, because I think that parallel in IT is, it's like a disaster recovery plan. You know, yes, you go into your data centers and you build a ton of redundancy and geographic redundancy and things like that. That doesn't mean you couldn't fall prey to a disaster. Right. And every company needs a disaster recovery plan. And the disaster recovery plan could say, well, you know, we have a hot site over here, so we should never be down. Mm -hmm. And the response plan like this for a data breach probably, there's probably no like, you know, no matter what we're covered, right. but at least you have a plan to say, when we find out something's happened, this is the team that's going to run with it. And those folks are prepared and know their role. Yeah, I think that was. Well, I think one of the things you spoke up on was ownership. Right. Like, who owns this? And I think people kind of thinking around the room because I kind of see faces was kind of like, huh, oh, that's a good question. Who owns this? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so the way they approached the workshop, the KC guys, was they set up a fictitious example. I guess they said it was based on something that really happened, but. Regardless, you can see how this could really happen. Mm -hmm. And they dribbled a little bit of information as the hack was playing out. So you were in the shoes of a new security analyst who had been with the company for a week. And, you know, so slide one was like, you start hearing about um, some issues where the help desk is getting slammed with all these questions about their accounts. And then you saw a social media post that, some accounts have been posted to the dark web. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to become aware of it. And Is that the one where the reporter? Then the, that was step two. The one? reporter calls you, a reporter calls you from some online media um, site and asks you what you know about this. That's, I think that's where things got really interesting in the room. Right. Yeah. My perspective was, you know, if I'm a security analyst at a company, my role is not to talk to the media, right? Yeah, no, I would agree with that, yeah. Otherwise, I'd have media training, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, and the point I was making was, you know, answering that question, even to say, like, no, I don't know, but I'll have somebody get back to you. That could be a headline, like, right. a security analyst doesn't, you know, this company doesn't even know that spin they it, act. Spin in any number of ways. It yeah. could get spun any number of ways if I'm just looking for a headline. Mm -hmm. um, I think so, the takeaway on that part, though, was that from a training perspective, making sure the organization knows who to send media inquiries to. One of the companies I worked for, that was part of our training, was if you receive requests from the media, for you know, send them to this person or this department or phone number, whatever it was. And we had to actually do that every year. Right. You know, it was because you know, people would change and you know, procedures, whatever. But it was something that was actually accounted for from a organizational level. Somebody made that statement, I think, because, you know, from that perspective, a data breach isn't that much different than any other type of accident that could happen. So if you're, mm -hmm. you had a factory and the factory caught fire, right. and they, you know, somebody found your number or they were just kind of word dialing through <laughs> yeah. uh, a corporate phone number, you know, block, and they got you, and wanted to know about the fire, you know, you'd have to know, don't say anything. It's not your job. Right. Send them to that corporate phone number. Um, 
So even if you had a, um, a plan, or if you had a plan around how to deal with data breaches, it should include having them call that number. Mm -hmm. Because I think they would know how to say, no comment, you know, I'll return your call later or something like that. They would know how to, I'm sure they get all kinds of offbeat calls all the time. Yeah, that's when you see when, it, when you read like a news article, you know, reached out to so-and-so, um, have not heard back or, you know, did not provide a comment. <laughs> right, right. Which is probably okay at that early stage, right? You're probably still fact-finding and trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Right. Uh, you know, you would hope that the organization would be aware of things before it gets to the outside, but this is the real world and that doesn't always happen. Right. So I can't, so at that point, we're kind of at the point where it's like, you're starting to become aware. You, we're starting to think, okay, there's something I need to look into, but before you're able even, even to look into it, um, you get this media call. Mm -hmm. Then it advances into, you start having more information come your way. But I think the real key is if you have a plan, you know who to get involved and you start things going. Mm -hmm. um, Let's kind of fast forward because I, even though it was a great session, what I wanted to talk about was there were two example videos that we watched or kind of news interviews. Mm -hmm. The first one was with the British Airways when they got breached and um, it was two weeks after and they hadn't come out and made a public statement at that point. So they had this guy, I'll call him kind of a talking head because that's, <laughs> you know, there's so many talking heads on news channels and sports channels these days and um you know he was just saying you know one thing after another and it was they lost control of the situation they didn't get out and proactively communicate how about british airways yeah, yeah british sure. airways yeah. you know and they lost the opportunity to kind of formulate the message and let customers know that they'll be made whole right. and they'll be taken care of in that not only that, that their planes are safe, right? Mm -hmm. This had nothing to do with the operation of their planes. Because I think with an airline, okay, even if you got my credit card number, fine. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be on a plane that crashes. Well, it's interesting because look at what happened recently with the 737 MAX, right? They grounded it worldwide because of a software issue. Software issue, yeah. So now we're starting to blend, you know, blur the lines between it's not just payment and billing. Software issues can happen anywhere on a plane. Right. You certainly don't want it to happen in, in the air for sure. So you have to be able to steer the message where you need it to go. Obviously, you don't want to mislead people, right? Um, but controlling the narrative, which you know is all over the place—politics, et cetera, sports, whatever it may be—is a key part of making sure that it go. The stories go the direction you're looking for them to go. Yeah, exactly. The other video we watched was the CEO of Talk Talk, and it's interesting, the room, a lot of people had an opinion on whether or not the CEO did a good job. Mm -hmm. Now, when I watched the video, I thought the CEO did a good job in that I felt like she was being honest. Yeah. She was not trying to cover anything up. Um, there was an attack journalism mm -hmm. kind of style. But I also could see the point some of the other people were making, which was, she looked like she hadn't slept in 48 hours. <laughs> she probably hadn't. She was hanging her head. <laughs> Her body language was pretty weak. And then there's this attack journalist just like peppering her with questions. And mm -hmm. rather than prosecuting know, instead of interviewing, prosecuting, right? She yep. wasn't letting her finish her answers. The answers were never good enough. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, the people who handle that the best just basically put the reporter in their place and say, one question at a time, you know, let me finish answering. Mm -hmm. um, 
So anyway, I, we, we should try to find those videos and add them to the show notes. I think that, you know, I know we're kind of jumping all over because we don't want the show to go on for ever <laughs> in the day. Um, but one of the other interesting conversations was around when to get law enforcement involved. Oh, yeah. And there was a FBI special agent in the room as well. There was an FBI special agent in the room, you know, and, uh, Spot the I, fad, we found him. <laughs> yes. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And, um, you know, depending on the industry you're in, depending on what the potential risks of the, of the, um, breach are, mm -hmm. I mean, we were looking at a, I think we were led to believe that this particular company wasn't in the um in the business doing anything that would threaten the lives and safety of people mm -hmm. if they're breached it was like an e-commerce type scenario i think really right it was an e-commerce scenario but it didn't seem like it was e-commerce like gun company right, right? Yeah. they weren't selling guns right. online or anything but you know imagine a scenario where your client is selling guns or public safety is involved in some way. Mm -hmm. I think you need to be much quicker in terms of contacting law enforcement before you even have the full picture. Yeah. If you're something where lives aren't threatened, maybe you take your time to try to, you know, you don't want to um, get law, law enforcement involved and then find out that actually we weren't breached and <laughs> this was all a big mistake. Right. Well, I think uh, the FBI uh, is going to have a presentation on Friday in a couple of days. So we'll see that if it's worth, funny. if it's worth, you know, talking about that point, but he certainly didn't want to spoil or, you know, steal his own thunder right, right. <laughs> uh, ahead of that. Um, what did you think of the show, the show, the, the conference overall? Cause I have opinions. I'll let you go first. Um, well, it's very small. Um, I like the style of today, even though I don't think the style of today is going to carry forward. You know, the way the, the conference hall is set, I shouldn't even call it a conference hall. It's a floor on a, in a hotel. Mm -hmm. But there's another conference going on in the room next to ours. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow, it'll be split across those two rooms. There may be more people. Mm -hmm. So I think to kind of make my call now would be premature. Right. It's definitely but, a hot take. <laughs> it's a hot take. Um, but I'm having fun. And, you know, I met a guy named um, Dirk Wallfield from Cognitum Software. He's a GDPR expert. Mm -hmm. And one thing I didn't realize is that there are companies already paying fines oh, yeah. for GDPR. British Airways was one, <laughs> yeah. right? And there's a- And it's not an insignificant amount. It's based on, I believe, your gross profit or something like that. It can be year. up to 5% yeah. of your gross revenue. Revenue, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, so if you're a $100 billion company, it could be five billion dollars yeah um that's nothing to sneeze that so mm -hmm. yeah so anyway he, he was showing me some data uh that's publicly available and you know there are some large u.s companies being fined for their activities in countries in europe yeah i know google was just in the news recently because they won a lawsuit against gdpr okay um the it's around the right to be forgotten part of gdpr and what gdpr was arguing was that if someone makes a request to be forgotten google or the search engine would have to remove it from all of their product from all of their search engines 
meaning even search engines, search engines in different regions, not located in European uh, country. Okay. And Google won, I'm sure it'll get appealed, Google won by saying, or they won, the, the, the ruling from the judge was that, no, that's not correct. They only have to remove it from the, you know, the member areas of the EU that are falling under GDPR. So America is not covered under that, you know, right. other, other areas. So I think that was a real interesting ruling on how that's going to kind of move things forward because theoretically, you know, if you're in, let's say France, all you have to do is just change it to the U S version and you'd be able to still find whatever it is you're looking for versus if you're in France version of Google, for example, the results wouldn't show up. I want to get dark on our, on our podcast because I mean, we get asked by customers all the time about GDPR and now companies are receiving real fines are paying real money and this guy knows a lot about it so i'd like to get him on and share some of this information with our listeners mm -hmm. so i'm going to agree and say i thought it was it's a very small conference um the format of the conference is three days today was really kind of workshop so it's even though it's day one of the conference it's really more like day zero mm -hmm. so i'm curious to see how things ramp up the next two days because it then becomes more of a conference type thing right where there's different sessions but it's still relatively small i think from my count today there were less than 30 people there today which is a very small number you know for a you know an identity world <laughs> conference. Yeah. now i believe this is a new conference to the u.s i think it's only been around for years i could be wrong on that um and i felt like today was really good it could have been a webinar for sure but by being in the room and being able to have interactions with all the other attendees. And there was a pretty good mix from different people of, you know, other consultants, but, you know, companies and, you know, some fairly big companies as well um, that were having the conversation in the room. It was, I think that's the part that Rue was like, okay, this was a good thing to be here for. Right. I just hope that the next couple of days get a little bit bigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the content itself is, is hopefully going to live up to at least my expectations because I think that there's a there's something here and it, it kind of strikes me as you know it's a relatively new seems like relatively new show it's from a european-based company i think um it's kubinger Kohl is in germany i think it's munich. munich germany right where they're based out of so they're much bigger i think on you know the across uh, the atlantic i think we need to go and fact finding we need our own fact finding, fact -finding mission. mission yeah now my favorite thing of the conference today was what? The food. Food was really good, but specifically one item of food. Hmm. I guess the brownies. Brownies were, brownies were actually really good, but <laughs> and I'm and I'm a chocolate guy, so I definitely would have gotten that. But no, it was potato chips. Oh yeah, potato chips. They were unexpectedly good. They were dynamite. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to consider, you know, day one of success just based on learning how to pronounce cooping your coal and the quality of the potato chips. Yeah, I, here's my problem is that I eat like 6,000 calories <laughs> a day when I go to conferences like this. Food is too good. That's not something that normally happens, though. Usually no. we're eating better outside of the conference. Right. But yeah. In the previous podcast, I talked about Oracle World. And I remember <laughs> their lunch was got in a long line behind a couple hundred people mm -hmm. and picked up a bag lunch. Yeah. And then you went and tried to find somewhere to sit 
and forced networking with other people. Forced networking, <laughs> right? yeah. I know Gartner does that. Not to pick at Gartner, but like you have the tables, right? Right. Birds of a feather, I think is what they call it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of 12 people at a table. Right, and you're all like, you know, kind of sometimes awkward small talk for people who don't really want yeah. the social part of it and others that do. And you see faces that you know. So it, it's good and bad, but yeah. It's, yeah. It definitely wasn't your typical. I'm probably the person people like the quiet people want to avoid because I'm like, yeah, these are good potato chips, aren't they? <laughs> you should try one. You should try one. Here, I have one of mine. Um, but I think, I think as far as day one goes, it was pretty successful. I'm curious to see what happens next couple of days. So I think our plan is to record another one or two more of these just to kind of cover it up. But yeah, um, I'm, I am cautiously optimistic. We'll see where it goes from here. Yeah. I mean, depending on how it goes, we might just want to do daily updates and then tag them to the end of this podcast. Yeah. And kind of see like either the, the, the evolution of opinion, right? Maybe it's yeah. like, Oh yeah, today is, you know, it's you, don't want to do, you don't want our podcast to be like, okay, they've been <laughs> talking about this conference for like three months now. Right. And then that's it. So, um, yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe the potato chips tomorrow will not be good. And then, you know, I'm going to give them a failing rating. Um, all right. Well, I think that's probably it for today. Yeah, man. And um, we'll wrap it there. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, um, accolades, send them over wanna, to. If you're if you're also suffering from Seattle allergies, Seattle allergies, yes, it's like fall here and it's fall everywhere. Not well in the U.S. Not in Atlanta. It's not. No, it's hitting Chicago pretty it's hard. It's still in the nineties every day. That's too hot. I don't like that. Um. Yeah, so if you've got questions, comments, concerns, send them to questions at identityatthecenter.com. And we'll be talking to you in the next one. You've been listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. To access all episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.